Welcome to the podcast. Audio Jungle. In March 2021, at the height of the coronavirus pandemic, four of Europe's most powerful women sent a letter to Brussels. It included a dire warning. The pandemic had shown how much the EU depends on foreign technology, they wrote, and this needs to change. Their language was diplomatic, but the underlying message was clear. It's time to rein in big tech. Tech giants will have to change the way they do business. Unprecedented amount of pressure. A day of reckoning. Mr. Zuckerberg, I just want a yes or no answer, okay? Yes or no. Yes or no. Governments around the globe have set their eyes on the world's largest tech companies. But how did big tech come under so much fire? And how did it get so big in the first place? We might not always notice it, but technology is all around us. We use it to communicate, to get information, to organize our lives. And almost all of that technology is made by private companies. This has given rise to an industry known as Big Tech. And within this industry, four companies have become especially powerful. Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet, which owns Google, and Apple. In fact, they're so big now, they're known as the Big Four, or by their acronym, GAFA. Those companies actually run fairly different businesses, but what they have in common is that they all provide digital services. And those have become so ingrained in our lives that it's almost impossible to avoid them. Take me, for example. My phone is made by Apple, and when I use it to surf the internet, that traffic likely runs through servers owned by Amazon. Or let's talk about you for a second. There's a good chance you're watching this video on YouTube, which is owned by Google, and you might have come across it on Facebook. The point is, big tech is everywhere. And this has made the companies very, very rich. While the coronavirus forced many businesses to down shutters and plunged the world economy into a recession, big tech is reporting enormous profits. The stock prices of all big four have skyrocketed. Some, like Apple's, doubled in value since the beginning of the pandemic. Now, some would argue that this success comes with responsibility. And increasingly, people are asking if those companies are living up to that responsibility. No, and I don't think we should expect big tech to be benevolent. They have been trying, but it's, it's really hard. The answer to that depends where you are talking from. Let's untangle this. The core criticism of big tech essentially comes down to four points. It's about how they protect the privacy of their users, how they can be held liable for what's happening on their platforms, how they pay their taxes, and how they treat their competitors. And when it comes to the first point, privacy, big tech really has been under fire for years. But it wasn't always that way. The birth of big tech dates back to the Silicon Valley of the late 1990s and early 2000s when most of the companies were founded. Their missions were ambitious. The startups were out to disrupt the status quo, connect people and give them unprecedented access to information. And when a decade later protests spread across the Arab world, 
Many saw that as proof for how the technology could indeed be a force for democracy. And it was. But what people did not pay much attention to at the time is how big tech actually makes money. Most of the companies got big by providing free services to their users, while in exchange collecting data about them and selling ads. And another couple of years later, the Cambridge Analytica scandal helped many understand how this very data could also be used to manipulate them. When reports emerged that a consultancy had mined information about millions of Facebook users to influence how they voted in the UK's Brexit referendum and the 2016 US election, that changed how people looked at big tech. Especially in the United States, I think for a long time, it was seen as a, as a source of strength. But the idea that there could be, you know, groups inside the United States that were using those alleged champions of the United States to turn, you know, their pride into a vulnerability, I think has really hit home for a lot of Americans. Since then, stricter data protection laws have been passed around the world. Now, the full truth is that they haven't always been enforced. But increasingly, governments and courts are doing just that. And that's one reason why big tech is now feeling the heat. The second one has to do with liability or the question of who's responsible for what's being said or done on the platforms run by big tech. Supporters of outgoing US President Donald Trump have attempted to storm the Capitol building. So it's a question experts have been debating for years, but it only moved to the front pages when in January 2021, following online calls for violence, a mob stormed the US Capitol. What happened on January 6th has definitely mainstreamed this conversation. But we should not forget that even before the Capitol storming, we were already talking about liability on social media platforms when we talked about Myanmar, for instance. Years earlier, nationalists in Myanmar had already used Facebook to foment violence against the country's Rohingya minority. Facebook didn't even notice that because they didn't have anyone speaking the local languages. They have grown even faster than they could um, think about what kind of responsibility comes with that growth. Facebook has acknowledged mistakes in Myanmar and it has pledged to do better. But increasingly, governments are saying that such pledges alone are not enough. And some, like Germany, have passed laws that now force platforms to take down hateful content quickly or face big fines. And speaking of money, there's another reason why big tech is under fire, taxes. Critics say that the companies are not paying their fair share of taxes, both when it comes to how much they're paying and where they're paying them. Governments, both in the United States and in Europe, have given them a lot of space to go to the lowest point of, of taxes, right? To, to use the, uh, the loopholes to deploy their armies of lawyers and accountants all over the world to place profits in, in uh, other constituencies than where they were actually made. NGOs estimate that in 2020 alone, a group of 20 countries in the global south missed out on over $830 million from Facebook and over $910 million from Google's parent company, Alphabet. 
Big technology companies like Google, Amazon and Facebook operating in France will soon be paying more tax. Some countries have introduced national taxes to make the companies pay at least some taxes where people use their services. But many people believe that actually a global tax would be needed. International talks were stalled by the Trump administration. Now the Biden administration has signaled willingness to come back to the table and some hope for a deal by this summer. But if that's going to happen is far from certain. And taxes aside, some people are also saying that those companies have simply become too big, which brings us to the final issue, competition. And once again, it helps to go back in time. This man is John D. Rockefeller. Over a century ago, he was essentially what Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg are today. Rockefeller had built up an empire that controlled over 90% of oil in the US. This made him the richest man of his time. But people said his success was built on unfair practices. And in 1911, the US Supreme Court ruled to split up his corporation into 34 companies. Fast forward by 110 years and you'll hear people say very similar things about big tech. In late 2020, US Democrats said in a report that every one of the big four runs a monopoly like the kinds of monopolies we last saw in the era of oil barons. Companies, they said, effectively have to sell their products on Amazon's marketplace because they have no viable alternative. Apple, they added, gets to decide what software people use on their phones and charges supra-competitive prices to developers. Facebook bought up companies like Instagram or WhatsApp whenever they were about to become serious competitors, according to the lawmakers. And Google has favored its own services in its search engine and advertising business, the report said. The companies all reject those claims. Amazon has dismissed them as interventions in the free market. Apple says it does not overcharge developers. Facebook argues that all its acquisitions were approved by regulators at the time. And Google says that unlike what the report says, it still has strong competitors in the market. But this has not stopped the US and other governments from launching antitrust cases against the companies. And some are even asking, why don't we go back to what was done 110 years ago and break up big tech? Make no mistake, breaking up big tech would be incredibly difficult and messy, and it's far from certain if any of that will happen. But the debate is gathering speed. I don't know to what extent it would solve all the problems that we currently have, with big tech. Breaking up a company is a remedy of last resort. And I think there is more uh, in the spectrum of antitrust enforcement. It's a threat to our democracy if, if any single um, company has so much power. And we already see how much lobbying power they have, how much money they are spending uh, trying to, to influence not just politics, but um, NGOs, um, research. Around the world, big tech is spending more than ever on lobbying. In Brussels, for example, the big four spent at least 15 million euro last year alone, according to the EU's lobbying register. They have their reasons. The bloc is working on landmark legislation to both curb in the market power of big tech and better hold the companies accountable for what's happening on their platforms. And it was against that backdrop that the leaders of Germany, Finland, Denmark and Estonia sent their letter in March. 
fundamental democratic values are under severe pressure, they wrote, and we need to safeguard competition and market access. It was their way of saying, time to get tough on big tech. Keep listening to our weekly episodes to find out more. President Biden is gearing up for yet another battle to try and get a huge spending plan through Congress. This one's for child care and education, what he calls human infrastructure. The issue is how to pay for the $1.5 trillion proposal. CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Nancy Cordes has more. In roughly half the country, infant care is now more expensive than college tuition. To afford it, Brissandi Ruiz of Greenbelt, Maryland, works seven days a week. I feel bad because sometimes he tells me, Mommy, I want to play, and I can't because I have to work, otherwise he won't have a childcare. The White House is crafting the American Families Plan with parents like her in mind. It's a roughly $1.5 trillion proposal that would fund free pre-kindergarten and community college, extend the child tax credit, and create a national paid leave program. To pay for all that, they're considering raising the top marginal income tax rate and nearly doubling the capital gains rate for those making more than a million dollars a year. Republicans are already pushing back. One called it a terrible idea that could actually lead to a decrease in tax revenues. The White House disagrees. The president's calculation is that there's a need to invest in uh, child care. There's a need to invest in early childhood education. His view is that that should be on the backs. That can be on the backs of the wealthiest Americans who can afford it and uh, corporations and businesses who can afford it. And Nancy joins me from the White House for more. Good to see you, Nancy. So you discuss these proposed tax increases, which are a non-starter for many Republicans. Are Democrats considering other ways to pay for these proposals, or do you think that they're going to try and use budget reconciliation once again to get this infrastructure bill passed? Hi, Lana. Well, the challenge for Democrats is if they don't raise taxes, they don't have many other options uh, to raise money to pay for these proposals. Really, the only other a big direction you could go in would be to slash spending somewhere else, most likely in the domestic discretionary budget, and that's something that they are uh, unwilling to do. So it's kind of raise taxes or bust. Um, there are some Democrats, frankly, who argue that you shouldn't have to pay for the entire thing, that some of this infrastructure spending is going to uh, boost the economy, and then that ends up paying for itself because businesses and individuals make more money and they end up paying more taxes. But uh, regardless, right now, the White House is arguing they do want to pay for it. And uh, if they don't raise corporate tax corporate taxes and they don't raise uh, taxes on the wealthy, there are a few other options for them. Well, Republicans have rolled out their counterproposal to President Biden's infrastructure plan with a $568 billion price tag. That's a little bit more than a quarter of the president's plan. Why is there such a wide gap between these two proposals? Because Republicans think that the Democratic plan that the White House put forward is simply 
too big, too expensive. And so they spend money on some of the same things that the White House wants to spend money on, fixing roads and bridges and installing broadband and that kind of thing. They just spend less. And then they eliminate entirely some of the other initiatives that the White House feels are important, but that Republicans argue are outside the realm of traditional infrastructure, things like um, uh, boosting health care and addressing Medicaid. Uh, Republicans say that's not really infrastructure. It should go in some separate package. The White House argues it's all related because uh, if you don't help people uh, go to work, if you don't shore up some of the holes in the social safety net, that it makes it more difficult for everyone to, to get ahead. So that is really the crux of the difference here. Uh, and it is a massive gap. But interestingly, the White House is not sort of walking away from the Republican proposal the way it did the last time around with COVID relief. Uh, they're saying that they hmm. still want to engage with Republicans. They want to sit down uh, and talk through their proposal and, and see if there is some bipartisan agreement to be reached, at least on parts of the infrastructure plan. And I asked Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, why it is that they have a different stance this time around. She said it's not as it's not an emergency the way it was with COVID relief. They felt that they really needed hmm. to meet the moment and go big and that the Republican plan just simply uh, wasn't enough for the, the problems that the country was facing. In this case, they still don't think it's enough, but they've got more time. This is not something that has to pass right away. And so they're willing to take the extra time, in this case, to engage with Republicans, even though, as you noted, these two sides are so far apart, it's hard to see how they would meet in the middle. Uh, it does sound like they're they're at least exhibiting uh, an interest in trying to compromise. Have they indicated the White House or Republicans uh, any areas in which they may be willing to do so? You know, it's really hard to see where that that realm of compromise is right now, Lana, because even when you talk about how you pay for this spending, they are totally not on the same page. The way that Republicans are proposing paying for their much smaller package is with user fees. They don't want to touch uh, either corporate or uh, individual taxes. Uh, they just lowered those taxes a few years ago under President Trump, and they don't want to think about raising them again. Um, they would instead try to raise money, uh, you know, so that using money, say, from people who, if they use a bridge, if they're on the roads, they pay tolls. If you use the airport, you end up paying uh, a surcharge to fly out of that airport if it's been fixed up. Uh, but Democrats argue that the math is really fuzzy. You can't raise enough money that way and um, that Republicans are cooking the books. Uh, Republicans turn around and accuse Democrats of trying to raise all this money off of U.S. corporations. Uh, they argue that's going to make the economy less efficient. So uh, that is a real dividing line. And there is no sort of, you know, area where you say, oh, this is clearly where they're going to meet in the middle. It's hard to see uh, how that compromise takes place. And yet, uh, the White House just said today that the president is going to be sitting down with the Republicans who crafted that plan next week. And so they're going to continue talking and see if there's a deal to be made. 
It is, that uh, reminds me, as you're talking about that, Nancy, about uh, Press Secretary Jen Psaki's comments to you about raising it on the backs of corporations. I was surprised that she used the language on their backs. Um, but, but I want to look forward in just the last moments that I have with you to next week, because, uh, as you mentioned, the president will roll out the American Family Plan during his address to a joint session of Congress. What else can we expect from that address? Uh, you know, if past State of the Unions and joint addresses are any guide, you are going to hear about every topic under the sun that is important to this White House. <laughs> yes, the centerpiece, of course, will be this new American Families Plan. They're withholding a lot of the details now because they'd like him to unveil those details with great fanfare uh, in his speech next week. But beyond that, he'll talk about all the other things that are on his agenda. He'll talk about gun safety. He'll talk about immigration. Um, you know, he'll talk about health care. Uh, he's basically laying out his wish list, his agenda for the entire year. He'll talk about foreign affairs as well. You know, to probably mention the fact that he has invited the the president of, of Russia to sit down with him this summer. Um, the interesting thing about this speech is that it is going to have such a different feel from the State of the Union addresses that we are so used to uh, covering and watching here in Washington and around the country. Uh, the House chamber, by necessity, because we are in a pandemic, is going to be relatively empty. All of the lawmakers can't even attend, let alone their spouses, let alone guests, let alone the guests that the president himself normally invites and has seated up there in the gallery and points to and, and shares their inspiring stories. None of that will be happening this time around. And so uh, the White House is going to have to find other ways to kind of convey the, the pomp and circumstance that usually surrounds these types of speeches. One thing that will be the same, Lana, is that... Uh, like uh, presidents before him, President Biden will be hitting the road the next day to try to sell some of the items on his agenda that he talks about in his speech the night before. So we're told he'll be going to Atlanta the following day and that he's got more travel planned the day after that. Sounds like we have a long night and a long week ahead of us. Nancy, thank you. You're welcome. I wasn't really planning on talking about the Jenny accusations because they were put to bed pretty quickly. But then earlier today, it started coming out that there's now going to be an investigation and she could potentially be fined. Let's take a step back and get everyone up to speed. A few days ago, Jenny uploaded a bunch of pictures to her Instagram showing her at an arboretum. Within those was a picture of seven hands holding ice cream that caused some people to accuse her of violating social distancing guidelines. Reportedly, there is a nationwide ban on group gatherings exceeding five people. Again, the original picture showed seven hands. The accusations and complaints got to a point where the Arboretum themselves had to step in and say Jenny was there to film. It was a business-related visit, meaning no guidelines were broken. After that, YG Entertainment had to come out and further clarify that she was there for work and it was not a social gathering. For the next few days, things were pretty quiet, but I guess there were some people who kept filing complaints on the matter and one person posted online that 
after they filed their complaint, an official on the team in charge of health and quarantine in the city said they will investigate to see if Jenny, and I'm guessing everyone with her, to see if they will have to be fined. This is where all the articles started coming out yesterday. I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens. I don't really understand though. The Arboretum themselves said it was business. YG said it was business. If both parties are willing to say that, it has to mean there is paperwork to prove it, right? And if they were there to film, there is footage to prove it. I think a quick email with some attachments could fix this whole thing. And why would the Arboretum allow a group larger than five with a high profile person like Jenny to even be there socially knowing it could potentially get them in trouble? Now while most of the reactions I've seen believe it had to have been business for all these reasons and that Jenny and everyone with her weren't violating social distancing guidelines, the perception was quite the opposite for the photographer involved in the situation regarding Espa's winter. However, last time we talked about it, I said let's see what happens because the accusation and news just blew up. Well, it's been a week and I've actually seen a lot of opinions and views shifting or at least taking a step back and there are a few reasons for that. First of all, on top of SM saying nothing happened, the photographer announced his intention to take legal action against those who are spreading rumors. Second, it has been reported that the person who initially raised the issue apologized on Twitter as well as to the photographer. And just like in Jenny's situation, there were a lot of questions being raised at the time in regard to him being innocent. For example, to a lot of people, it doesn't make sense for him to attempt to take an inappropriate picture when Kareen and Winter were clearly talking to and in front of a camera. On top of that, why would he try to take a picture when there are so many people around? Many people also pointed out that she wasn't wearing a revealing skirt or dress. She was actually wearing these pants. Why would he so blatantly risk his job? Remember, he was the photographer in charge of that shoot. Obviously, an extremely high position that's difficult to obtain. So with all the new updates, I'm curious, what are your thoughts now? Do you still think the footage is suspicious? Do you think he is innocent? Have you always thought he was and that it was blown way out of proportion? Or are you taking a step back because while we want the best for Espa's safety, we also don't want a potentially innocent man to lose his job for nothing. Now, something people have no doubt is invasive at the very least is the designer of BTS's outfit for their performance of Idol on Jimmy Fallon announcing he will be auctioning Jimin's outfit unwashed. But wait, there's more. The designer himself revealed that BTS actually wanted to buy the hanbok styled suits afterward, but since he didn't normally sell his clothing to idols, he only lent it to them out of fairness. You can see how that would be upsetting for people to hear now that he's selling the outfit unwashed, or as he puts it, touched and worn by Jimin, still having his sweat and fragrance from that day. I feel weird just, just saying that. Now, you would think that the auction company will have the sense to wash it before sending it out to the highest bidder. But nope, they confirmed that's not the case. I do wonder this though. Wouldn't someone like the stylist or manager from Big Hit have handled it before giving it back to the designer? Meaning it was washed beforehand and maybe this is just some marketing gimmick? I'm just a little confused because I would think this kind of thing would hurt a designer's reputation with future clients, no? I don't know. We have seen this week people with not the greatest reputation further digging a hole for themselves and not caring? If you haven't seen the comment made toward Itzy's region yet, a rapper named Owen Ovidaz? Ovidoz? Anyway, this rapper has been in hot water before for various controversial things he said in the past. He's even had to drop out of Show Me The Money and 
be edited out. And this week, when a fan commented, Ryujin's rap is better than yours. And granted, I don't know why this person would say that to him. You know, if you don't like him or whatever, just ignore him. Use that energy to show Ryujin even more love. I mean, look at her. She's such a boss. But to this comment, he replied, her rap was conceived and birthed by my sperm. Which, um, I, uh, I honestly, I don't know what that means. Was that his attempt to diss her? If one of you guys could let me know, it would be much appreciated. However, he has since deleted the comment, probably because the backlash got way too much for him. People accusing him of being sexist or making a sexual comment toward Ryujin, which, by the way, would reportedly not be his first of the kind toward women. Now, I don't want to end the video on that note. So, in celebration of the upcoming BTS McDonald's meal, I want to throw out some menu ideas. McDonald's, if you're watching and want to use one of these, my door is always open. First of all, to represent McDonald's and replace Ronald McDonald for the promotion period has to be RM, right? I mean, it's right there in front of us. Or we can call Shiny's Key. Anyway, for the menu, I was thinking the big Hit Mac. Anybody? Anybody? How about sugar cookies? Huh? Sugar junk cookies? No? How about, how about J-Hobie meals? Something for the kids, you know? Spicy chicken nuggets with the dynamite sauce? For some kick? Alright, my brain can't think of anything for the other members yet, so you guys fill that in in the comments. But, I did think of something for all seven. Ready? Ready? <clears throat> Boy with nugs. Thank you for listening to today's episode. and where we're headed as we enter our next phase. Our vaccination efforts to date have focused on significantly increasing the pace of vaccination. That required creating the infrastructure, the people and the places for a first of its kind nationwide vaccination program. It also meant creating sufficient vaccine supply that did not previously exist. We have seen these efforts pay off. We have 75,000 places for Americans to get vaccinated. Importantly now, 90% of all Americans live within five miles of a vaccination site. By the end of May, we'll have enough vaccine supply for every adult who wants one. And thanks to President Biden's directive, everyone 16 and over is now eligible to get a vaccine. And as we announced on Wednesday, we delivered 200 million shots in less than 100 days. An incredible American achievement. This crucial milestone of 200 million shots in less than 100 days enabled more than 52% of adults across the country to have at least one shot. That's more than 135 million Americans who are on their way to being protected from this virus and more than 80% of individuals, sorry, 65 years and older, now have at least one shot. Importantly, seniors accounted for 80% of COVID deaths, but now we've seen an 80% reduction in deaths and a 70% reduction in hospitalization among seniors, proving just how effective vaccination is in preventing death and severe disease. This significant progress in a short period of time is a direct result of our deliberate whole of government 
wartime effort. So to where do we go from here? The next phase of our vaccination program has four key areas of focus. First, we will continue to vaccinate millions of Americans each day. As you can see on our vaccination report, our current seven-day average is 2.9 million shots, nearly 3 million shots per day. Going forward, we expect daily vaccination rates will moderate and fluctuate. We've gotten vaccinations to the most at risk and those most eager to get vaccinated as quickly as possible. And we will continue those efforts, but we know reaching other populations will take time and focus. Second, we will continue to increase accessibility and make it easier and easier for Americans to get a shot. I noted a moment ago that 90% of Americans have a vaccine site within five miles of where they live. And we are working with states, businesses, doctors, local pharmacies, and other partners to make it even easier for people across the country to get vaccinated. We took a very important step on this front earlier this week by calling on all employers to give paid time off for vaccination and announcing a tax credit for small and medium-sized businesses to do this more easily. No one should lose a single dollar from their paycheck in order to get vaccinated. Further, just as employers are effective at helping Americans get vaccinated, so too are doctors. People look to their doctors for medical information and advice. Estimates show that about 90% of doctors have gotten at least one shot, which makes doctors a powerful and important messenger. We are working with doctors to encourage their patients to get vaccinated, and we're working with states to get primary care providers vaccine doses so more Americans can get vaccinated at their doctor's office the same way they are accustomed to getting other vaccinations. You will also see us focusing on other ways to make it as easy as possible for Americans to get a shot, including encouraging walk-up availability at pharmacies and other vaccination sites, and providing transportation options for those who need them. Third, now that everyone 16 and over is eligible for a free COVID shot across the nation, we are laser-focused on educating the public about these life-saving vaccines. As Americans have seen their friends, family, and neighbors get vaccinated, confidence has increased. And over the coming days and weeks, we will double down on getting the facts to the American people about COVID-19, about the protection vaccines offer, and the critical path vaccines play in us getting back to our normal way of life. To be clear, we have always known strengthening vaccine confidence was key to getting Americans vaccinated. Dr. Murthy will discuss these efforts in more detail, but they include funding for state and community groups, resources for local messengers, and partnerships with key voices to elevate the importance of vaccinations. Finally, as we have since the start of the administration, we continue to place equity at the center of everything we do. 
We are committed to reaching everyone in our response and ensuring everyone has equitable access to vaccines by expanding our community health center program, deploying more mobile and pop-up clinics, providing transportation options, and meeting people where they are. To that end, we're opening two new federally run vaccination sites today in Kentucky with a combined capacity of 7,000 shots per week. To close, we are excited about the tremendous progress to date and the opportunity ahead of us. Because of the vaccination program we have built, we are further along than many predicted. That's a very good thing. It means we're closer to returning to normal. While we know the next phase of the vaccination program will involve improving access, increasing confidence, ensuring equity, it won't be easy. But neither was getting to 200 million shots in arms in less than 100 days. But we did it. And that's a cause for a moment of reflection. It's what America is capable of when we come together and all of us do our part. With that, let me turn it over to Dr. Walensky. Dr. Walensky. Thank you, Jeff, and good morning, everyone. I'm glad to be back with you again today. Let's begin with an overview of the data. Yesterday, CDC reported nearly 63,000 cases of COVID-19. Our average seven days is going down 62,500 per day. This is a 10% drop in average cases from the prior week and a hopeful trend. The seven-day average of admissions is 55,600 and is just a small increase of 1.6% from the prior week. And the seven-day average of daily deaths decreased slightly to about 691 per day. Again, a number that's going in the right direction. Today, I'd like to take a moment and celebrate one of the tremendous milestones we as a country achieved this week. As of today, 66% of the U.S. population age over 65 and over is now fully vaccinated. This is over 36 million Americans who are protected from COVID-19. And it's so important that we're protecting those over age 65. They have borne the brunt of the pandemic and without a vaccine are at high risk for severe disease, hospitalization and death. We are well on our way to have one of our most vulnerable populations fully protected against this deadly virus. And that is a reason to celebrate. This achievement has been the result of combined efforts between CDC, FEMA, and among the, and the Health Resources and Services Administration, or HRSA, state governments and private sector partnerships, and importantly, you, as individuals who are one at a time rolling up your sleeves to get vaccinated. With ongoing partnerships, we are working as quickly as possible to get the rest of the country vaccinated. As we look at the data on vaccine coverage, it's important for us to dive deeper into what we are seeing across the country. We see on this map that vaccine coverage is not uniform across the country. Please note we have state level data, but not county level data for Texas and Hawaii. Otherwise, looking county by county, there are some unsettling gaps in our coverage. Some areas are doing very well with greater than 65% coverage for those over the age of 65, as indicated by dark blue. 
but many areas have far less coverage, less than 47%, as indicated by the lightest shaded areas. Because this virus is an opportunist, we anticipate that the areas of lightest vaccine coverage now might be where the virus strikes next. And with modest protection of our oldest population, many more deaths could ensue. So while we have many reasons to celebrate, we also have the potential, indeed the need, to do more to protect people now. On the CDC Data Tracker website, we provide disease data down to the county level. This allows you to join us and learn how the virus might be spreading in your community and also what percent of your county is vaccinated. Vaccination is about protecting ourselves from COVID-19. It's also about protecting those in your community, our family, our friends, and our neighbors. Now that everyone is eligible to receive a vaccine, please help turn your county toward more protection and a darker shade of blue. The healthier our families are, the healthier we will be as a nation. Um, moving on, I want to share a new study that was published this week by CDC scientists. On Wednesday, the New England Journal of Medicine published the preliminary findings of post-COVID-19 vaccine surveillance in pregnant persons. Clinical trials of COVID-19 vaccines did not include pregnant people, leaving us with limited data on the safety of vaccination in pregnant people and babies to date. Through county, countrywide surveillance using the CDC vSafe app and the vSafe pregnancy registry, as well as the vaccine adverse event reporting system, we were able to follow over 35,000 pregnant people who were vaccinated. Pregnant people experience the same side effects as others following vaccination. We were also able to follow in detail more than 3,900 pregnant women and over 800 of whom have completed their pregnancies. Importantly, no safety concerns were observed for people vaccinated in the third trimester or safety concerns for their babies. As such, CDC recommends that pregnant people receive the COVID-19 vaccine. We know that this is a deeply personal decision and I encourage people to talk to their doctors or primary care providers to determine what is best for them and for their baby. I started today by saying we have many tremendous milestones to celebrate this week. In addition to over 65% of Americans over the age of 65 being vaccinated, this is also the week we hit 200 million vaccines in less than 100 days, and the week when all Americans age 16 and older are eligible for vaccination. I encourage all younger people to follow the example of older Americans and to get vaccinated. And regardless of your age, please be an ambassador for your neighbors and loved ones by encouraging and assisting them to get vaccinated themselves. With that, I'll turn things over to Dr. Fauci. Thank you very much, Dr. Walensky. So I'll switch topics now from vaccines to therapeutics. Could I have the first slide, please? Uh, just three days ago, my colleague and I uh, published a paper in MED, which is a new journal from Cell Press, uh, essentially reviewing the therapeutic landscape. And one of the important points that we made was that the results from one stage of disease should not be extrapolated between disease stages, even though we're getting more and more candidates that have been shown to have some positive effect in clinical trials. Next slide. 
taking this from the uh, guidelines panel that I mentioned to this group at a prior press briefing, if you look at the colored-coded boxes on the left, they represent disease severity from people as outpatients who are not hospitalized to people who are hospitalized but don't require supplemental oxygen, to those requiring supplemental oxygen, to those requiring high flow devices or non-invasive ventilation, to the final most extreme of those requiring mechanical ventilation. And there are different therapies that have either been approved by the FDA or have been given an emergency use authorization or that have common practice like dexamethasone. So again, as I did before, I encourage physicians to check out the treatment guidelines if you have any questions about treatment. Next slide. This slide is interesting because what it tells us, it is, it is now here plotting the case fatality rate over time in the United States and throughout the world, noting here that the case fatality rate of individuals has come down very, very likely due to best practices being implemented, namely knowing how to taking care of patients better, but also the introduction of a number of therapies into the care of individuals. Next slide. I showed this at a previous briefing when you talk about direct antiviral therapies are being targeted against vulnerable points in the replication cycle. And as I mentioned to you a few weeks ago, there are several of these that are now in various stages of trial. But I want to mention just very briefly today that there are three new clinical trials that have started over the past week. Next slide. First is a trial called Active 6, which is a randomized placebo control trial that are looking at seven existing prescription and over-the-counter medications that participants will self-administer. We know this is going on in clinical practice. We're going to try and find out if they actually work. And these include things like vitamin D, fluoxamine, and others. Next slide. The second trial is a phase 2-3 called Active 2, which is an interesting trial of a polyclonal antibody that has been derived from the immunization of transgenic cows that will be placed into a therapeutic protocol involving a number of other agents as shown on the bottom of this slide. Next slide. And then finally, there's a clinical trial of therapeutics for severely ill individuals. It's randomized, it's blinded, it's placebo control, and it's gonna study zyasemi, which is a synthetic version of a vasoactive peptide and remdesivir alone and in combination against a placebo. So as you can see, there are a number of things going on right now in the area of therapeutics. And as we go along the weeks and months to come, we'll be updating you on not only the clinical trials, but any important results that have come. With that, I'll hand it over to Dr. Murthy. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Fauci. And it's good to be with all of you again this morning. Uh, we know that vaccine confidence has been building in our country uh, since the end of last year, early January, and the vast majority of people in the country uh, now are either vaccinated or want to be vaccinated soon. 
But with that said, uh, we want to continue uh, very hard our efforts to ensure that we are getting information to people and empowering them uh, with knowledge about the COVID-19 vaccines so that they can ultimately make decisions for themselves and their families and protect themselves from COVID-19. Today, I want to share with you two updates uh, related to our We Can Do This public education campaign. The first, uh, building on research that we know uh, shows that people want to ask questions about the vaccine directly to healthcare professionals, including their doctors. We are launching the We Can Do This Live, which is an initiative to connect people with facts on vaccines from medical experts in the places where they already consume content online. So we're pairing doctors, scientists, and health officials with influencers and organizations with accounts that can reach millions of Americans through events like Instagram Live Q&As and social media account takeovers. Some of the people and organizations who have agreed to share their platforms with us include uh, Barbara Corcoran and Mark Cuban from ABC's Shark Tank, uh, Eva Longoria, the actress, Walter Kim, president of the National Association of Evangelicals, and also organizations including NASCAR, the NBA, and the WNBA. And there are many more uh, in this list as well. The goal here is to reach audiences who may not be following the news or government accounts or medical doctors or scientists. And if we put doctors and experts directly into their feeds on the platforms that people are already following, we believe we can help get trusted information from trusted sources to people where they already are. It's just one more way that we're seeking to build confidence in the vaccines. The second update I want to share with you is several weeks ago, we launched the COVID-19 Community Corps, which is a nationwide grassroots network of health professionals, community organizations, rural union and faith leaders, and Americans from all walks of life. And the goal here was to step up and protect our communities with vaccine education and empowerment, working with local partners. Now, the Community Corps continues to grow, and I want to highlight for you some stories that we've been hearing about the work from a few of those organizations. One member, Meals on Wheels, is now working with local governments, pharmacies, and other community partners to host vaccination clinics at senior centers and to offer mobile vaccinations to reach those who are homebound. Another member, the Catholic Health Association, is promoting the acceptance of COVID-19 vaccines through their hashtag LoveThyNeighbor social media campaign. And they're disseminating this also through publications and webinars. The National Association of Manufacturers and the Manufacturing Institute, which are both members uh, of the uh, COVID-19 uh, community, community, they have partnered with the University of Florida's Center for Public Interest Communications to research what messages work best to communicate about vaccines with manufacturing teams and communities. And on Monday, earlier this week, Dr. Alice Stanford, the founder of Black Doctors COVID-19 Consortium, spoke with the core and with me about her work in Philadelphia, testing, informing, and ultimately vaccinating tens of thousands of people in the Philadelphia area. All of this is in addition to the initiatives that we've shared with you in the past, uh, the digital and TV and radio campaigns we have to get information out to the public, the more than $3 billion uh, that we are now moving to get to local communities to help support uh, local organizations in their efforts to get people vaccinated. Look, I know that COVID has separated many of us physically. And what's really encouraging and inspiring to me is just how many people, despite that separation, have actually stepped up to help one another. It's really what we need now to bring this pandemic to an end. And I know also at these briefings, we share with you what the government is doing to address the pandemic. And there's a lot happening in that department. 
But to truly turn this pandemic around requires more than government action. It's going to require each of us to take action as well, not only to protect ourselves, but to protect other people in our lives. I mean, ultimately, I believe that this is one of those moments where we have to decide who we are as a country. Are we 300 million people who happen to live in the same place? Or are we fellow Americans who recognize we're stronger when we care for and protect one another? And my family and countless other immigrants came to this country, whether it was a few years ago or a few generations ago, because many of us believe that America at its best was a community where people looked out for one another, where they were tied together by common values and common concerns. And I still believe that that's who we are at our best. And that's why I'm urging every person in our country, not only to get vaccinated, but to go one step further and help the people you love get vaccinated. Make sure they have an appointment, help them get answers to their questions and lead by example and show them that you are getting vaccinated too. If we do this together, we will turn this pandemic around. And I believe in the process, we will protect our families, our communities and our country. Thank you for your time and we'll look forward to your questions. Back to you, Jeff. Well, thank you, doctors. Let's uh, open it up for questions. Thank you. And we only have time for a few questions today. So please keep your questions to one question. Shannon Petty Peace at NBC. Hi. Um, so if the um, pause on the J&J vaccine is lifted, um, but there is this link determined, the committee does determine that there there is a link with this um, severe adverse event in the J&J vaccine, even if incredibly rare, how do you see the J&J vaccine fitting into your campaign going forward? Because I know there's going to be some people who say, well, there's two vaccines that aren't linked to any rare conditions. So why should we be using the J&J vaccine at all if you have two vaccines that don't have any, you know, even rare side effect associated with them? Dr. Walensky. Yeah, thank you for that question, Shannon. So um, I'm not going to get ahead of the ACIP. We've been doing a lot of work um, over the last week to um, identify any additional cases and to do and to conduct some risk-benefit analyses. And part of that risk-benefit analysis is who would prefer or wouldn't otherwise have access to two-dose vaccines and really um, wants the J&J vaccine or would otherwise not get it. That risk-benefit analysis will be presented to the ACIP today. I think the FDA and I both um, feel strongly and the CDC feel strongly that uh, we need to act swiftly after that analysis. But I, I do think that there's um, plenty of people who are interested in the J&J vaccine, if just for convenience, um, as well as for a single dose option. Next question. Good, Tommy Chris for Mediate. Tommy, you're unmuted. All right, let's go to the next question. We will go to uh, Josh Wingrove at Bloomberg. Hi, thank you for taking the time. Jeff, can you give us an update quickly on emergent? Is it days or weeks or months before you think that an EUA is possible there? And broadly, can you talk a little bit more about the president's remarks earlier this week about sharing vaccine doses with other countries? I'm sure you've seen in particular India is on it is having a terrible time right now. That is a country that has been shipping AstraZeneca doses to other nations, now has quite a problem in its own backyard. 
Will the U.S. consider now sharing its AstraZeneca doses, which are, of course, not authorized for use here yet, uh, with either countries that would have expected them otherwise from India or to India directly? Thank you. So in terms of um, Johnson & Johnson and the Baltimore facility, you know, as we've talked about, Josh, this is a process between the FDA uh, and the companies, and we expect J&J to work through this with the FDA. You know, our vaccination program was never built on one vaccine. We have plenty of vaccine supply of Pfizer and Moderna. There are tens of millions of doses already out in the country of Moderna and Pfizer, ready to be administered. And now, as we've talked about, all adults, all individuals 16 and over are eligible for a shot. Uh, so we have plenty of vaccine supply uh, to um, have all adults get vaccinated. As to um, India, uh, I will first have um, Dr. Fauci comment on the, on the situation, which I know is a difficult situation, very difficult situation in India. Dr. Fauci? Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Yes, obviously, India is going through a very terrible uh, uh, situation right now. They've had yesterday the largest number of cases that has ever been reported by any country. Uh, they have a situation there where there are um, uh, um, variants that have arisen. We have not yet fully characterized the variants and the relationship between the ability of the vaccines to protect, but we're assuming clearly that they need vaccines. Um, the CDC is helping out by consulting with them as they have in other countries in which there are situations and giving technical assistance. But it is a dire situation that we're trying to help in any way we can. Um, we just have to see how things go. And obviously they need to get their people vaccinated because that's the only way we're gonna turn that around. Yeah, I'll just add that we have a, a long-standing commitment to India's public health and are, as Dr. Fauci said, working closely with them in the COVID-19 response. Um, the Quad Partnership and team is providing assistance across government uh, to the country. And, uh, you know, this is a global pandemic and India demonstrates the risk of what can happen if we don't get the pandemic under control everywhere. Um, and it's why we made uh, the biggest investment in COVAX, and we are committed to um, sharing vaccine supply. As our confidence around our supply increases, we will explore those options. Next question. The thing, Next Jeff, question. that's important is that early on when we were not seeing countries in the uh, lower and middle income countries that didn't have as many infections that people would say, maybe there's something special about climate, about this, about the youth. I think what this is telling us in Africa and in India, that when you have a global pandemic, it is a global pandemic and there are no countries that are really safe from it. Next question. Last question, let's go to Brenda Goodman at WebND. Hey, thanks for taking my question. Jeff, you described a lot of the things that the government's doing to try to help make vaccinations more accessible for people. And I'm wondering if there's been any discussion as at speaking in economic terms, as the market kind of becomes saturated for, for vaccines for people who want them, if you've discussed um, offering any incentives, um, financial or otherwise, to help kind of move the movable middle people that might be on the fence. Well, I think the, the incentives here are clear. These vaccines save people's lives. And uh, we talked about 
the decrease, the 80% decrease in deaths for people over 65. That's so critical because sadly, people over 65 accounted for 80% of COVID deaths. There's also been a 70% decrease in hospitalization. So we need to make sure that vaccines are accessible and easy to um, find and to, to, to get your shot, uh, convenient. At the same time, we need to continue to build vaccine confidence, as Dr. Murphy talked about, answer questions about safety and efficacy, um, and make sure that we continue to have equity at the center of everything that we do. But I think the case for getting vaccinated is compelling. We need to make sure that people have the information that they need to make that decision and that hopefully people get vaccinated as soon as possible now that it is everybody 16 and older's turn to get vaccinated. Thank you for, for joining today, um, and we look forward to briefing next week. everybody, Zian over here from Nintendo Life. Now, a lot of people still collect retro games, you know, there's there's a lot of us out there, but there's also a good majority of people that, I don't know, for some reason think that it's a, a waste of money to, to spend lots of money on these physical games, you know? Like, why spend uh, $100 on an old game when you can emulate it or download it on the virtual console or or something else and and that's that's kind of almost <laughs> an entirely different topic in itself i guess but i think there's a lot of merit in still having a physical cartridge and the manual and you know being able to play it on original hardware and it just so happens that i have two other lovely people here to chat with me about this whole hobby and why why we spend money on old games just why we do it in general alex the man the myth the missing know himself why don't you say hello no and, oh oh no <laughs> well i'm uh, going to say bibble instead okay. <laughs> oh i thought you were going to say bibble what's bibble is bibble nothing bibble there we go John, are you there? Would you like to try I'm this? Sorry. I am here. I'm here, Ram. You can't emulate me. I, I go for the high, high price of £20. But you were 99 cents only the other day. Yeah, I, I was inflated. That's what happened. Remember, I, I bought him out. I bought him out and the price went up. <laughs> That's very true. Very true. So, guys, so retro games, right? Especially in, like, in a lot of my videos, sometimes people will look at them and be like, oh, this guy, he just buys all the games uh, that he can't. He doesn't even play him at all. He's just showing him off in the background of his videos. Blah blah blah. And and you know that's not true. It it gives it gives a reason to help me buy games. So I suppose for for me the biggest reason, and I think it's it goes pretty uh it goes pretty much the same for you guys as well. Oh, uh, don't assume, don't assume, Mister Zeon. I could collect them because I like to wash them, make a house out of them. I, I'm pretty confident about this assumption here. <laughs> I mean, I do actually like to clean old games. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the big reason why we collect these games is just because we love games. Just, you know, plain and simple. 
um, for me especially, like, a lot of the games that I try to collect now are just games that I, like, played as a kid, <laughs> whether it was that I rented it once from the Piggly Wiggly grocery store down the street, or I borrowed it from a friend, or I read about it in Game Pro or Nintendo Power, or, you know, saw a, a, a review for it on G4, who, who knows, you know, um, but for me, I think that's, that's a big reason why I, I collect these games, is just because, you know, I, I wish I had them as a kid, or, I still want to go back and play them now. But I, I feel like, you know, the easy answer to that is just that we just love love games. Um, that was the <laughs> that was the assuming part, Alex. <laughs> well, I think, OK, fair enough. You can assume that I do enjoy games. Otherwise, I'm very much in the wrong line of work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think for me, I, I generally when I buy retro games, I buy them because I actively want to play them. That is not 100% the case. Like, there are a few occasions, like, I've got a copy of Diddy Kong Racing that I've literally never played. Um, I never owned the game when I was younger. I borrowed it from friends and things like that and played it at friends' houses. But I never actually owned it. And I just I just happened to see it once in a local retro game shop. And I was like, you know what? I want Diddy Kong Racing. And it wasn't super expensive or anything like that. But I wanted it. So I bought it, and yeah, I haven't played it. I, I do want to play it, though. Um, I think the problem is is that with so many retro games, there is a degree of convenience that just isn't there for a lot of systems. I'm slowly getting there with other systems, but the N64, it's still not super simple to just plug it in and play, you know? Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. Diddy Kong Racing, that's a great game to just have. I, I don't know if it's on the virtual console. I mean, it's definitely not on Switch, and if, uh, you know, if you didn't buy it now, maybe it would be crazy expensive come a few years down the road. And and because uh, maybe there would be no other way to, to play the game beyond emulating it, which is a sticky subject in itself. I think also with Diddy Kong Racing, there are issues with licensing because it's got characters like Banjo in it. And I know Banjo's in Smash, but, right. you know, is it really worth going through all the rigmarole of um, licensing and things like that? just for diddy kong racing i mean i would say yes but i really <laughs> like diddy kong racing yeah a lot of my retro experience came from the virtual console because growing up i was on the playstation side rather than nintendo until the wii era <gasps> so all my nes and super nintendo and n64 that that all came from the wii and like, even turbo graphics like stuff like bonk's adventure and so when i got a bit older and got my first part-time job i was just kind of in college with all this disposable income um, and I spent it all on just collecting games because it felt so good just to have those games I played in my earlier years uh, in physical form. And it kind of spiraled from there. So I, I think I got an NES first with Super Mario Brothers. And then I got like Mega Man 2 and all these other games. And I was basically getting everything I played in a digital format in physical form. And then it goes on from there. I was getting all the stuff that I didn't play on the Wii. And it just kind of kept going and going and going. So for me, like, collecting isn't just about playing games on authentic hardware. Like, that's, that's a big part of it. I love playing on the actual hardware. But I also just like having them. I think that that's a huge part of collecting. Like Alex was saying, sometimes not even playing the game is part of it. Like, you just like having a complete set of a collection or just a game on your shelf. It's, it's, it's more than just, like, just playing the game yourself. I know there's an argument that is brought up by quite a few people, and it is a bit of a sort of a, it is it is a contentious issue. If you're, you could argue that if you're not going to play the games, why should you buy them? Because by buying them, you're taking them out of the market from people who maybe do want to play them. And I do think that that is a genuine argument. However, at the same time, 
<laughs> thing like if you were to sort of see an ornament that you liked or, or an antique or something you were theoretically if you buy that you were taking that off the market and is certainly if it's something limited like a game or like an amiibo i mean would anyone argue with anyone for buying an amiibo and never using it in a game i know it's not quite the same uh, argument per se but i don't know i think as long as you're not hoarding them just for the sake of um collecting them and then maybe reselling them or just hoarding a load of copies to bump up the price and then reselling them I think as long as you're reasonable with it, I don't see any great harm in just buying to collect. Yeah, there's still a joy in that. Like, playing them can give you a joy too, but just having it as well, having a big collection. Um, I've got quite a few valuable games like Snatcher and Panzer Dragoon Saga. I'm not always playing them. Like, I've played, I definitely played through them the, like one or two times, but it's not something I'm always at. Does, does that mean I'm not giving the game the value it deserves? I don't think so. I, I enjoy just I enjoy I enjoy just having them. Yeah, and you bring up a good point too, because sometimes I feel like a little bad about uh, having so many games as well and and not being able to play them. Like I actually have um, ever since I did that backlog video like a year and a half or however long ago it was. Um, I made a physical stack of re- of just, I guess not all retro games, but there's some PS4 and Switch games on it, and uh, and I keep it in, in my room here, and it, it just kind of taunts me whenever I have, like, some free time or whenever I've just finished a game or whatever, um, and, uh, and I, I've tried to kind of justify s- some of my game purchases by putting things on there that I've, I've never finished, like... I'm, I'm very ashamed of this, but I've started Chrono Trigger like three times and I've never made it even halfway through the game. Oh. I know. So that's like, that's one big one that's always... It's going to be rectified. Right. But but that's the other thing too, is that, you know, sure, some of us might have bought, maybe we bought these games a long time ago and we're sitting on them and they're expensive now, but we're also treasuring them. We're taking care of them and, you know, we're giving them the, uh, the I, I don't want to say the attention that they deserve, but... um. But the respect is kind of how I see it more. But I'm always like trying to let my friends borrow games and, and you know, share them like I this is a big dream, but it would be so cool to like open a video game library someday. But you would there would be so many games that you would just never get back like Snatcher would get snatched. Definitely. Um Just because of how expensive they are. You know, I don't know how you would ever find a workaround for that. But but yeah, it's almost kind of like we. We have our own little like personal libraries or like um, for me also, it's kind of like a memory bank too. like I don't ever have to try to remember. Well, I mean, (laughs) I do have to try to remember the games that I enjoy, but having them on the shelf makes it so easy for me to be like, oh, yeah, like I love that game. And if I want to play it right now, I can instead of now I have to hunt it down and it's it's a million dollars on eBay or or whatever it is you know and that's such a big struggle with this with just collecting retro games now too is just how expensive things are getting and there's the preservation aspect too like psn's not shutting down anymore but um for a while we we all thought it was so games like the place the best of playstation network volume one and there there was never any other volumes just volume one exists yeah (laughs) but that used to go for 15 20 pounds but the moment people heard that Tokyo Jungle in particular was getting taken away, that went straight up to 200 pounds. It was a nuts jump. But people just want to have something forever. And when you buy something digital, there's, there's always a chance that the store's going to be taken away, or your console's going to malfunction and you'll lose the game, or your account's going to get locked. Like That stuff, is, it's always a looming presence. I, I tend not to think about it that much these days. But when I first started reviewing games on my, on my own channel, on my own personal channel, 
I used to like get a copy of Mario Tennis Ultra Smash in particular, and um, I had a digital copy for review, and I ended up buying an empty box just to feel like I had the game. I grew out of that habit slowly, but <laughs> I would I still do it sometimes. Like sometimes I get a, 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 a review copy and I end up getting a special edition and giving away the cartridge to a friend or something. But I just want the box, especially with things like Zelda. I can't not have a physical Zelda. But um, it, it's that that's that's more of a me problem. It's interesting because I do think the fear of games and well anything else really disappearing is a genuine is a genuine thing and. I'm guilty of it myself, not so much with games, but um, just with like my film and TV collection. I've I, I, I'm in the habit now of just ripping all my discs, putting the discs into storage, and just viewing them. I mean, it's more convenient to do it that way, um, to just watch them from you know like a, a standard UI, um, and it's more convenient. It's quicker, and at the same time. I don't have to worry about the discs rotting because I do. I've got the, the, the first disc of my box set collection of men behaving badly. The disc is rotting. Eventually, that will become unwatchable. And that's not like the biggest tragedy in the world. But at the same time, if I own something, I want to theoretically be able to watch it forever. So, you know, I've got a digital version of it. And I've got um, a backup of it as well, because I'm paranoid. Um, (laughs) And I think the same goes for games. You know, you want to preserve, you want to keep, you want to hold on to things. But where I kind of draw the line, and this isn't like a universal thing for me or a blanket thing, but I'm not big on buying sealed things. Like I don't, I don't understand it. It's like yeah, that, that's oh, too far. For me. I've got a sealed Same. copy of Breath of the Wild on Switch. It's like okay, that was a game that was meant to be played, and if it stays <laughs> in that state, it will literally never fulfill its purpose. You know, uh, you know, my copy of Diddy Kong Racing. It's in the box and everything, and I've never played it. But you know, eventually I will play it. And even if I didn't, and for whatever reason you know sort of it it just got sold off because i died or something or it got inherited by someone i don't know it it would eventually get played it's not going to be thrown away because it's a thing of value and i would hope that the person who inherited it or bought it would play it i love the idea of like you know someone accidentally finding like um i think we did we run a story recently on someone finding like a copy of pokemon like a parent finding it in their closet and it was it was on original game boy and it was sealed and you know it was like something they had meant to give away or for for christmas one year and they didn't and i i love the idea of someone finding that and that feels like a treasure of a game that like you shouldn't open but that does feel like such a different sure. case because I, I i completely agree with you alex like i have a few sealed games myself um but i think for the most part like i if i have a sealed game i want one that i have opened as well to play and that's I mean, some collectors might get it, but that's also kind of hardcore, I guess, too. <laughs> um, but usually it's like, oh, maybe I found like I, I bought Shadows of the, of the Damned. I got that for like 10 bucks on PS3 sealed a few. Uh, this was this is probably like 10 years ago now. And I loved that game. And uh, and I just had the chance to buy a second copy cheap. And I'm glad I did, because now it's like two hundred dollars. I think I saw online. The one thing that I don't like at all, though, with retro collecting is graded stuff. I don't know oh, if you guys have God, seen any no, of that. That's a step up even more beyond sealed. You know, something can be sealed and be <laughs> natted. But, you know, 
like graded as like oh it's in a special pristine box and it's like you first ever bought it and from a pure preservation like it belongs in a museum kind of thing yeah i can kind of get it but for like private collections yeah it just <laughs> smacks of complete pointlessness to me like oh my copy of uh, balan wonderworld has never been touched by human hands and it's like i don't <laughs> care yeah my, my one of my only sealed games is Louvre 3DS, and I don't intend to ever open that because it was kind of it's like a souvenir. But John, I guess. it's the best uh, game. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's like I think it's the most expensive 3DS game, and um, it's it, there's also like a digital version on the eShop you can download. So I'm not losing anything by not opening that. I can just download that if I want mm-hmm. to. Um, but I, I think for me, a, a big part of retro games is that I don't think games are disposable. I think the industry often wants us to see them as disposable. Like to be on the next big thing, to always be on the next game, to get the DLC, and then buy the next game after that. And I don't like that. I don't like the idea that we should just be consuming the next product after the next product. I love that games from 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and so on and so on can still have their value because there's thousands of amazing games out there and there's a huge chance that a game from 20 years ago is going to be better than a game that's just come out um so i personally speaking retro games for me the big value is that the the amazing stuff is still out there and there's no reason to wait for a game that's in development because you can just be playing something right now the backlog is just infinite it's just going to get worse and worse one thing i've been doing recently zeon is i've been playing through the dragon quest remakes on ds and they're all really expensive now. Like, five is 200 pounds, um, four, I think, is 100, and six, six is like 30. But uh, I wanted to get four, because that's the one that I was lacking. And people were saying to me, just play it on mobile. It's, it's 15 pounds on mobile. Just play it there. And I hear, the, I hear them. I, I hear that it's fine on mobile. It's the same version. It's still the DS game. But I, I just want to have it. Like, that's a big difference for me, is I could play it on mobile. I don't want to, though. I, I want I want the actual DS. Yeah, version. yeah, I get it. Um, I mean, there's something to be said about playing. Uh, you know, and you probably get this a lot from playing all the games on Virtual Console back in the day. Um, there's something to be said about being able to play a game. Um, you know, in like in better resolution potentially. Um, you know, some things like like Pokemon Snap you played on on Wii had a had the, the ability to like kind of save your photos. And I know we didn't offer save states, but a lot of systems do. Like the 2DS and 3DS for uh, Super Nintendo games offer save states, and that's how I played Earthbound. And I may never have beaten that game if I didn't have save states because i might have gotten so frustrated playing it on original hardware but <laughs> with the right game um and the, the right system format yeah it, it can really just elevate uh the experience like even we're, we're seeing it now too um i don't know if you guys have one or if you've noticed this at all but like crt the the retro tube tvs are kind of coming back now mm. and uh it's so weird to see people spending money on these again and i don't know if it's because they so many of them have been recycled to a point now where they're just there's less of them out there and a significant amount of people want them which i feel like there's i feel like not that many people really want them but but there's enough that there's enough of demand there yeah 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 like i upgraded my my tube tv uh last year the year before and i sold my other one and i got around i think it was like 50 or 100 dollars for it like they gave me money to recycle like to take it like that's that's so weird and this you know same with video games just 5 10 20 years from now if we don't keep getting these games if if these games don't get preserved by 
you know, different companies, and, and if they don't make other ways to play them, they're just gonna get more expensive. Uh, you know, like, Alex, didn't you buy, you spent a chunk on something, like, a couple months ago, too, right? What, Doshin? It was, um, I think it was either January or February, and now it's become a part of my identity. Um, yeah, <laughs> it, it wasn't, the thing is, is that I bought Doshin for about, I think I spent £45 on it. It wasn't a load of money. But it was more than I generally tend to spend on a retro game. I'm not, like, mad keen to buy the really rare games or anything like that. I want to buy the games that I want. And Doshin the Giant was one of them. You know, I'd always heard about it and never properly played it. So I got it and I had a really, really good time with it. Yeah, I think that, again, you know, that's the crux of it for me. I buy the games I want. I don't buy the games because they're rare. I buy the games I want, and sometimes they're the rare ones and I don't end up getting them because they're yeah. too bloody expensive. But I did actually have a thought just a few moments ago regarding um, preservation and things like that. Something I've never considered is that eventually all the games that we're talking about will eventually become public domain. I mean, it's a long oh, way yeah. away. Okay, okay. But eventually... The original Super Mario Bros, that's going to be public domain. At least the game, you know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not fully familiar with uh, copyright and trademark law and stuff like that. But eventually these, you know, these games and these properties will become fair use in the same way things like uh, Frankenstein and Dracula. They're all, any anyone can just do anything they want with them. And Sherlock Holmes, things like that. They're all in the public domain. Eventually... Mario, Sonic, and Captain Falcon, all these characters, even Dosh and the Giant, they're all going to become public domain. And that is going to be the point where we are going to want people to preserve the games. We're going to want the originals, you know, not necessarily sealed, because, mate, we're going to be opening them to have a go. Um, but, you know, these old ver these old games, the original versions, maybe people are going to start distributing them. I mean, eventually that's going to become a reality. And we're going to want these preserved games, mate. Yeah, that, that's sort of an interesting thing because, you know, we don't really... Uh, people talk about that in the, um, uh, in the... in Like in the space of movies and music. Like I think recently Batman um, or maybe maybe I'm thinking of Mickey Mouse. One of those is up for, um, is up for that uh, in the next five or ten years, I thought. I'm pretty... I'm not, I'm not very knowledgeable on this topic. My buddy Josh is like he knows way way more than i do and i've learned some from him i imagine it's gonna be it's gonna be mickey mouse because that's it's it's always disney that keeps lobbying to have the law change so that it becomes <laughs> longer and longer so they can keep just you know having a monopoly on mickey mouse sure, despite sure. him being arsehole <laughs> but you know video games haven't been around long enough for that really to be part of the conversation but you're right at no. some point that's going to be a thing. And that's that's such a crazy thought to me, too, is think about that. In 50 years or 100 years, there's going to be potentially so many games to play that you're going to be able to talk to somebody who collects retro games or just even just plays classic games. And they're they're not going to have an idea about as particular classic that you love. Like, I think, you know, games like Chrono Trigger, I think will go down, you know, for the ages and people will always know of that game. But, but you know, Bubsy 3D, someday <laughs> people aren't going to know what that is. And that's going to be heartbreaking. Mm. But, but at the same time, we're going to be able to like re-experience these games with new people. I mean, I shouldn't say we, the future generation, they'll be able to, to share it and it'll be like they've, 
Never heard of this. That's a really good point. No, it's fine. I'm going to live forever. (laughs) The games industry is still young compared to film and, and especially books. And um, so we've basically grown up with most of the industry in its defining moments. Like we, we've been able to experience the growth of Atari and Nintendo and Sega, like the defining traits of console gaming. Whereas there are people born now who probably don't know that stuff, and it's not really being preserved for them. Like, even with Nintendo right now, they give you a, a couple of NES and Super Nintendo games. They don't reflect the entire library. We're, we're getting a, a good handful, but there's so many core games which aren't part of that. And a lot of publishers just aren't really giving consumers these days a chance to play them. Like the only the only way you can play Chrono Trigger right now is the PC version. There's no console version. There's no way to play Dragon Quest 4, 5, and 6. Or you can't play Wind Waker and Twilight Princess right now unless you have a Wii U or you if you're born in the Wii era. But even the Wii is coming up to being what 15 years old yeah i feel like as these generations of people you know i I know i've talked with you guys about this before but you know as uh the Wii generation you know as they get steady jobs and and have have uh disposable incomes i feel like those games are going to be scooped up by people that grew up with them and you know remembered them and, and want to play them again you know i'm i'm definitely uh guilty of that like nostalgia it's kind of like a succubus for me can, can i say that you, you can say succubus all right okay just slap a teen rating on it and we're fine right <laughs> <laughs> I know GameCube Lam is getting a lot of hype around prices surging, but DS, DS is going up there too. Yeah. Um, the Nintendo stuff is still pretty common, like Brain Asian and Nintendogs, they're worth nothing. But when you go further into the library, especially the third-party stuff, like the RPGs and the visual novels, there, there's so many games over £100, tons in the £200 category. I'd say it's worse than GameCube right now. Uh, it's just getting higher and higher and higher. And it's a younger system too, but it seems the nostalgia is just gripping DS right now. Uh, Ghost Trick on DS, for example. I like I wanted to buy that game for so long. And uh, I think I played the demo on iOS or something. Actually, I think I've I think I've talked about this on the channel before. But now it's it's like over a hundred dollars here in the US. And yeah. uh and part you know, I wish I would have bought it back in the day. Uh obviously you can't you can't have everything, and that's fine. Um but uh but it's just it's so it's sort of deflating to like see see a game that you've always wanted to play and like have the only option be emulate it um, or to buy the physical version and not, you know, not have another way to like I would love to give Capcom money to, to play that game um, on Switch or something or, you know, uh, just some some means. Um, and it doesn't seem like that's possible. Please. And when companies don't let us do that, I think that's kind of what makes, you know, retro games more valuable to us right because then you know like i i i think we kind of all maybe would share this sentiment if we thought about it but i i dream someday of like being able to like kick it back and just like play video games as you know like my my entire hobby you know like i i clean up my yard i do the dishes i i take my dog for a walk and then i come home and i play four hours of a game and then i have dinner with my loved one and then i you're, go you're to just bed. looking forward to retirement basically <laughs> yeah, aren't you yeah. but I'm, I'm looking forward to retirement with these games potentially See, you're, you're like 20 but you're like okay. 28 I love playing games and that that's that's all i i just <laughs> i just want to get to a point in life where i can just that's it that's it <laughs> god when you get as old as me you'll understand i'm 29 um it's like yeah you're like a half a year older than me or something <laughs> <laughs> let's not talk about john john's 14 yeah. i think i think we have hit, um quite an interesting point though the question in the title why do we buy retro games 
The answer is because eventually there'll be public domain and people will be looking to idiots like us and go, Hey, Alex, where's Dosh and the Giant? And old me is going to go, Here it is, Sunny. And I will be paraded through the town as a hero. That's why I buy retro games. I appreciate that you gave yourself an old man voice as well. I was like... It wasn't a very good old man voice, though. But you did it. You did it. We can't choose them. They come to us. <laughs> you can pick your nose, though. Uh, it's funny you say that, though. I, I do actually kind of have a dream of someday, like, having a garage sale and, like, selling off a bunch of my games and, like, having, like, a kid run up and be like, Whoa! Mom! Look it! Look it! He has... Give me a sec. Let me look at the shelf quick. And um, He has Balktai on the Game Boy Advance. That's the game that uses the solar panel. You can only play it in the sun. Mom! Oh no, it's five hundred dollars. And then I and then I just like I look at and I pull out the receipt because I still have the receipt in the box and I realize I paid like thirty dollars for it and I go, Sonny, you can just have this. And and then he walks away and he he maybe never plays it because he has uh, Fortnite sixty seven on his Xbox seven twenty because Microsoft finally decided to do it. I mean, to be fair, if you've got an original GBA, you can only play any of them in direct sunlight. <laughs> That's a good point. That's, That's true. true. I don't know what my collection's going to amount to because I don't. I don't feel like I'm going to sell this because I, I. I love games. I, just, I love being passionate about them, and my passion goes beyond playing them. Um, I, I love just having a collection. I, I'm, I'm disappointed that my Vita collection's quite small because I'd love to have more Vita games if only just to have them. Um, and it, they, they all have like memories with them too. Like when I was younger, I would sell my games all the time to afford new ones, and then I'd be like, "Oh, I miss having that game because I, I have all these memories attached to them." So even if I don't play them again, just looking at them um, just reminds me of the times I had, and I, I don't think that's something that I want to part with. I sold Super Mario sixty four DS and other games in order to buy the limited edition version of Fable three. <laughs> it's never worth selling your old games. Oh, no. What a decision. I was young and foolish and still very handsome. You spent extra money. <laughs> you could have you could have kept a couple games maybe and and bought the regular version of Fable three, but yeah, yeah, but I wanted the, I don't know, whatever's in the special edition. It comes in something that looks a bit like a book and feels like, uh, just like that horrible old fake leather that people put on things yeah. to make it feel more expensive, but it just makes it feel cheap. There is a coin in it, though, which is quite fun. It's okay. It's, I mean, we all, we live in different times and we, you know, if, if you didn't, play fable 3 back then you wouldn't have known if it was good or not you know you never it's not you took a leap of faith it's not good yeah it's not great <laughs> it's not it's not awful but it's it's like fable 2 wow that was really really good fable 3 oh it's not even as good not tremendously relevant because oh my god is oh my god is fable 2 a retro game i think so you know this this is another discussion <laughs> For me, for me personally, I always consider retro to end at the the early 3D era, like PlayStation, N64, and Saturn, maybe Dreamcast. That's where retro ends for me, and I think that's always where it's going to end. I think retro is a mindset of 
game development rather than in age. But like, in, in the Wii era, I considered NES at retro. I don't consider Wii retro now, even though it's around the same age as NES was then. I think it's even older as NES, than NES was oh, then. Oh, God, don't say that. But, yeah, it's it's a spiral. You do bring up a good point, too, John, that I, I kind of wanted to touch on just super quick. But I have, personally for me, I have a lot of memories with certain games. Like, I, uh, my mom and I, we played a lot of video games together when I was a kid. And we would go, yeah, we would go to the local Piggly Wiggly grocery store and we would rent just i don't know the most random stuff like that was where i first played bubsy and i loved it as a kid and now i've gone back and played it and like the the scrolling of the backgrounds or the fact that i can't remember the background doesn't move with you there's just something weird about it that just it's somewhat nauseating um and you know we we played tetrasphere on the n64 the like 3d tetris (gasps) game oh i love tetrasphere right and um, you know, there's so many games that I just have memories with that even just, you know, um, kind of like what you guys said, like just even if I don't play them, like looking at them and holding them and like thinking about maybe playing them or even just having the ability to play them is the most important thing to me. Like I don't collect games because they're expensive. Um, you know, it's I know these games are going to outlive me. And so someday I know that I will I will have to pass them on to someone hopefully that won't sell them um, or if they do hope just use it for your college tuition or something good. But uh, but, you know, I know these games aren't going to be with me forever. Um, but yeah, I, I collect games because I I just love them. I feel like we could still talk about this topic forever, but now is probably a good time to stop. <laughs> um but uh, it's 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 so cool to look back at these games, and I loved hearing your guys' memories about certain things. Like I didn't know, you know, you have your Diddy Kong Racing on display in the background of your videos, don't you, Alex? I do, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of cool to like learn about that and realize like I didn't know if that was like a big childhood game for you or if you've if it's one of your favorite games of all time. I had I had no idea. Um, so it's it's just fun to it's fun to chat about this random stuff and. And so, you know, if anyone in the comments, you know, let us know, you know, kind of what you got out of this conversation, you know, let us know even your favorite retro game if you have a chance. And as always, you can't forget about that like button or the subscribe button. And, uh, you know, you know, you should probably if you uh, if you like collecting retro games, you should go ahead and give that subscribe button a click because we we do talk about them on here every so often. It's not just all switch news. Right. And then, uh, right. Yeah. And then uh, if you like it even more, even if you don't collect retro games, why don't you go ahead and get that subscribe button great? Go ahead, send it to uh, one of those places. So uh, you you click it, and then you you send it in, and then it, you can never unsubscribe because it will be sealed in in plastic that you can only shatter with a hammer. Nobody should have that power. Don't don't do that. You should always be able to unsubscribe <laughs> if you want, but but we hope you don't. <laughs> uh, thank you all so much for watching. I'm Zian from Nintendo Life. It's been a blast having you guys. We'll see you next time. I'm the original Alex, sealed. And brand new inbox. I'm sealed in skin.
That's it for this week's episode. Add us to your podcatcher or on iTunes now so that you can make sure you never miss out on another second of our wonderful podcast. We would hate for you to miss out. Have a great week, everyone. Please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice. The opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so. Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.